Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me for the first time in I think about a year is Chloe Collar. Hi, sorry it took me so long to get back. (laughs) Yeah, quite a lot has happened since your last episode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We have welcomed your son Gabriel to the world. We have, we have, we have. And I have to thank you for giving me such an unbearably cute godson. Well, I try my best. So we haven't had a chance to record and hilariously we're now doing this with our new online setup because even though I visited you two months ago (laughs) there was zero chance of you having time during that time to record anything. (laughs) Yes. But now thanks to the miracle of technology we are at least attempting to record something although as we've seen we're already an hour and a half late recording this because I said to your husband Adam that Gabriel is like a printer. He can sense fear. Like if you really need a printer to work and print a document on a deadline. So for some reason, he just didn't go for his nap today. (laughs) No, he didn't fancy it. He thought, you know what? No, I want to be on the podcast. He may yet be on the podcast. (laughs) But because of this and your your busy schedule with a, a newborn baby, I was thinking that the best way to get you back on the podcast, because I missed you on it, would be to pick a topic that would be at least relatively familiar to us. And what better topic to choose than Old English and Old English poetry? Something I'm supposed to know about. <laughs> Yes, well, you're technically part of your current PhD is in this, but I suppose the best preface to this is to say that you and I, Chloe, met through doing our master's, which was in Viking and Anglo-Saxon studies. And for anyone who doesn't quite know the terminology, the Anglo-Saxons are the people who inhabited early medieval England, and Old English is the language that they spoke. And it is it, it is a language which requires translation to be understood by English readers. After Old English, you get something called Middle English, which is, if you read it out, it sounds like English, but written down, it can look a bit different. It's kind of like modern English, but with different spellings. (laughs) But Old English is early medieval, early pre-Norman invasion English. And so Chloe and I met while following our deep love of Old English literature by doing a master's degree in Viking and Anglo-Saxon studies at the University of Nottingham. We did. We had a quite special experience. We we were really lucky. For a relatively small course, it was 15, which was apparently very big for that particular course. But we've made a bunch of really close friends who have been with us. But within it, there was also... I, I want to give a, a shout out to our lovely friend Kate, who will hopefully be listening to us. There was also our friend Irene. And the three of us sort of formed a cabal of Catholic Anglo-Saxon enthusiasts that yeah. I met... you. I actually met you, Chloe, before we started our course, because I met you at the Sunday Mass at the university before course our course started. It's very on brand. Exactly. And we've been firm friends ever since. Our, our wonderful friend Irene will not be featured on the podcast for the coming um, years, if ever, because she has taken the brave step to join a religious order. But those are very fond memories. That whole year is is probably the most exciting year in my memory um we just had a lot of fun it was awesome so I was actually gonna just take a few minutes to ask you like how did you come to old English what made you like old English 
That's a good question. <laughs> so for, uh, prior to our master's at Nottingham, I did the bachelor's in English. And part of that course was medieval English, which had a lot of old English in it and old English poetry and literature in particular, as well as learning language itself. So that's where I first came across it. And as I sort of got towards the end of the bachelor's degree, I started looking a bit more into it. And there was some pieces of the literature and some poetry in particular, most notably one that we're going to talk about in the podcast today, that really hooked me onto Old English as something I wanted to look more into. I ended up doing the Masters, which I wasn't anticipating to do, but I did, which had, of course, a lot more Old English in it, which was wonderful. But it was that first degree that had it in, and I didn't know about it until then. See, I think I came to it a little earlier than you did, because I Mm -hmm. started to learn about it when I was when I first got into um, the world of Tolkien, and uh, I am very obsessed with the DVD extras to the extended Lord of the Rings, and they have their whole sections on how not only were the films made, but how the books were written, and they have a whole section on particularly the Rohirrim, which Tolkien largely based on Anglo-Saxon communities. He's it's it's sort of Anglo-Saxons plus extra horses. They did have horses at the time, but they didn't ride them into battle. They were just kind of modes of transport rather than a way of life. But yeah, if you're looking for a sort of mental reference point for the Anglo-Saxons, do you think Theoden and Meduseld and, and their, their halls and their culture. And I remember, I yeah, and you get, like, when you start learning Old English, like, there's so many that are just taken straight. I think Theoden is just the word for Lord. But I came to it knowing that Tolkien was a professor of Old English and that of all of the kind of Aries that he pulled from, that was probably the one closest to his heart. I have a really great quote here from an article about Tolkien and the the Anglo-Saxon heritage where it says, Tolkien was forcibly struck by a passage in the Christ of Cunewulf, which is actually one of the poems we're going to be talking about. And then they quote it in Old English, which I will attempt to read because the sound of Old English was one of the things that first drew me to the language. So I will read this section and it says, Eala Erendil, Engla Beorthast, Offer Middengard, Monum Sendid, which means Hail Erendil, brightest of angels, above the middle earth, sent unto men. And then they quote Tolkien saying, I felt a curious thrill, as if something had stirred in me, half wakened from sleep. There was something very remote and strange and beautiful behind those words, if I could grasp it, far beyond ancient English. Which, I mean, <laughs> of course I was sold as soon as I heard something like that. Absolutely. Um, how could you not so, be? How could you not be? So I, when I went to university, I actually majored in, in music, but I had a minor in English and I chose as many, we had to do some Old English and then I chose as many of those Old English and medieval uh, modules as possible. And I just loved it and I had great teachers. And yeah, so despite having majored in music, I then sort of went off on a a divergent path for my master's and did a master's, which was essentially an English master's. But our course was so much fun. There was so much range in it. I remember because there was translation and there was history and there was like the history of runic inscriptions. And we went on all of those field trips and um, it was a real kind of eclectic mix of it was quite a a holistic look at the whole world of the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings which was was. it's kind of the way I prefer to learn and it's so funny I was just saying before the call to you Chloe that I feel like after the masters for me anyway I went on to try and learn as 
many different things because it was such a focused year that I was like, okay, now I have a really good grasp of this part of like history and literature, but maybe I need to expand. And then within the last couple of weeks, I was asked to write an article on Holy Saturday, which has been published and you can find it on calledtomore.org. It's called He Descended Into Hell. And I wrote it about the harrowing of hell, which is the tradition in Catholic belief that uh, having died and been buried in the tomb, Christ descended into hell and liberated those souls that were righteous, but waiting for the salvation through Christ to happen in order to enter heaven. So he sort of goes down into hell and liberates all of these righteous souls. And there's quite a lot of old English poetry written about it. So it's quite a sort of dramatic and enigmatic tradition in Catholic teaching. And I, I, I love it so much. But it led me on to A Clerk of Oxford, which is a blog written by Eleanor Parker, who is, she's in academia in this particular area. I would highly encourage anyone listening to this podcast to check out that blog because it really reinvigorated my love of Old English and kind of reminded me of how much I enjoyed studying it and diving into that world. It is, it's, it's uh, the kind of blog that people who are actually academics in the subject can read and gain a lot from and learn a lot from and interact with but it's also very accessible so if you weren't if you hadn't even looked at it before I think you'd still it'd still be a really nice thing to look at because it doesn't it's not really fast-paced or uses a load of jargon it, it just mm-hmm. tells it as it is it's really good yeah she does such a wonderful job but it got me thinking about If A Clerk of Oxford is like a haven of wonderfulness on the internet, I will bring up possibly two of my least favourite things that I ever see ever on the internet. And that is the the common recurrence of memes to do with how the world sort of lost all of its knowledge around what people call the, quote, dark ages, by which they mean medieval. It's so annoying. <laughs> people have such a strange notion. Like I, I think it's so fascinating that people can look up to something like and, and have the world mourn over something like Notre Dame, but also completely sort of erase the time that it came from as having any sort of literary, artistic, technological, scientific merit at all. And it's just so frustrating to me. So the first thing I want to do with this podcast is address the fact that the medieval times and even the early medieval times had incredible poetry and incredible writing and was not some sort of weird, obscure time. It's so funny to me that in some ways people use the argument that because it was full of faith and full of religion, that that's the reason why they think didn't have a lot of merit to it. But then the other thing I really hate on the internet is sort of like having your cake and eating it too, because there's the argument that the traditions of Easter are nothing more than pagan remnants with a sort of Christian veneer. Oh, don't open that kind of words. <laughs> so it's like both that they were strange and superstitious because they were religious, but also that at the same time, their religiosity was also just a weird veneer over paganism, which is so frustrating and and annoying and wrong. Yeah, I feel like it's something that we could talk more about. Um, For sure, probably in this in this uh, episode at least. 
First of all, if you want to get a really good rundown of it, A Clerk of Oxford has a whole post dedicated to going through what the Easter customs were, how they were documented over the years, how they related to other customs, how they were informed by continental practices. But the thing that I wanted to get across is that the Anglo-Saxons, they came to England in the 400s, as far as I know. And what we call the Anglo-Saxon period essentially ended with the invasion in 1066 of the Normans. Because after that, you've got a huge influence of French culture, particularly in the upper echelons of society. So the people who were writing books and the people who were, quote, making history were all essentially culturally French. So you have a very different cultural expression at that point. So the the Anglo-Saxon era is very distinct from its kind of later eras, which makes it quite interesting. But that the time of Christianity in the Anglo-Saxon period was an incredibly rich and beautiful expression of Christianity and one that Chloe, as an English person, I'm sure you should be unbelievably proud of. I am. I am. (laughs) And it's such a shame that it's sort of fallen out of favour and not given much credence. It's just a shame that it either gets cast off as, quote, Dark Ages or and or pagan. I have a, a great article here, which was on Joseph Pierce's blog, Faith and Culture, where he, he talks about the healthy weirdness of the Anglo-Saxons. And he makes a really good point, which is that most people, if they hear the word Anglo-Saxon, know it in reference to the description of a, a certain type of American as being wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Oh, okay. Now you say it, I think I actually have. So in some ways, at least in modern culture, Anglo-Saxon usually is followed by the word Protestant, and that he goes on to quote saying, the irony springs from the fact that Anglo-Saxon England was profoundly Catholic to such a degree that the saintly Englishman Boniface helped evangelize pagan Europe, while his contemporary, the truly venerable Bede, exhibited the high culture that Saxon England enjoyed in abundance. Thus, even at the dawning of the Anglo-Saxon era, England was a beacon of Christian enlightenment, so much for the Dark Ages. Yeah, boom. I feel like the first seminar of our masters was basically, don't call it the Dark Ages. <laughs> yeah, to make this an Easter themed, since this is a podcast coming out in the Easter season, we are going to talk about some of the Easter poetry. And I will say some, because there's even more than the ones that we're talking about. And the corpus of remaining oh, poetry is not, is not particularly large. So um, the fact that we have so much around this theme is really, really cool. The blog I was saying about a clerk of Oxford has a has a good point about the Easter customs. She says, regardless of its etymology, Easter had been a Christian festival in England for over 1300 years, including the majority of the Anglo-Saxon period. Anglo-Saxon England was a predominantly Christian country for at least 400 years. And the way people celebrated Easter in that period is no more or less the Anglo-Saxon Easter than hypothetical pagan customs. We don't know how people might have spent that holiday, but participation in church services would have been a huge part of the Easter weekend itself. There's plentiful evidence available for the kinds of religious observance which Anglo-Saxon congregations could participate in during the Easter season, especially in the later part of the period. Various sources provide a remarkable glimpse into how vividly early medieval liturgy brought the Easter story to life through the use of sound, light, space and dramatic reenactment and how powerful an experience it must have been to witness and participate in. That's a really good description. I think the the dramatic reenactment 
as well because um, you know that like passion plays like famously medieval part of easter and christmas and other religious festivals and they're sort of coming into a resurgence now a bit but it, it's nice to have them sort of grounded in this was very likely to be part of the anglo-saxon celebrations of easter yeah exactly i know she has one a description where she talks about i think it's one of the vespers that the the monks sing and that one of the monks has to slip away and hide and then two of the monks go and find him and knock on the door and then he plays the part of the angel saying he is not here and then they all start singing like that's just so cool i think it really sets us up so we're going to talk about three poems and the first of which is the dream of the rude because the rude is if you don't know the word rude screen think of the word rod it means cross it's the old english word for cross and it's a poem that gives us such a sophisticated perspective on good friday so we're going to go from good friday although arguably the dream of the rude kind of brings you past good friday actually into the easter season so i know we're a little bit past the the lenten good friday but it definitely brings you past that into the easter season and in some ways, the the dream of the rude is such a dramatic poem, and it, it's so clearly a poem that falls into liturgy and a type of of prayer. That there are elements of it found on an old stone cross called the Ruthwell Cross that was used for monks to process around, and then it's also on part of a processional cross, like a gold cross that was brought into liturgies. So this was a poem that was part of this movement and drama of that Easter season, which is so cool. Yes, it's, I was going to say, it's it's my favourite Old English poem, but it may actually be my favourite poem, full stop. Wow. I love it. Yeah, I can totally see that. It's such an interesting poem. You mentioned it's on the Ruthwell Cross, which is actually very close to where I live. So it's just over the border into Scotland near Dumfries. And a place name fact from the place names lady. <laughs> the the first part, so the, the Ruth part of Ruthwell is actually derived from the old English road, the rude. So, so the actual cross, which contains um, an earlier version of the dream of the rude than the one that we're going to be looking at, is fossilized in the place names that still describe the landscape today. That's so cool. You're putting yeah. that, that PhD work to good use. <laughs> very, yes, very. <laughs> So I guess to give a bit of a setup for how the the Dream of the Rude works as, as a narrative poem, it begins with the poet describing a vision that he gets maybe in sleep or, or as he's as he's falling asleep of a cross that appears to him. And it's a it's such a amazing, elusive description of what happens. He says that there's a cross before him which is both covered in stones and gems and is glorious and impressive and at the same time both either you can see another cross through it or maybe the two shift in and out of each other it's deliberately elusive it's a very interesting description but it's also covered in blood and bleeding and wounded and then in one of the greatest plot twists of any poem the cross begins to speak (laughs) And what the cross describes is its experience of the Good Friday narrative. And in terms of its story, the poet does a really interesting job of weaving in parts of Anglo-Saxon culture that would make more sense to the Anglo-Saxon audience with the actual narrative of the Good Friday story. And so it has this sense of 
Christ being in a, in a way a kind of warrior because he he rushes up to climb the cross and obviously that's metaphorically but it's a sense that he is willingly embracing this duty with a sense of real urgency and in a way power and it's the cross itself that wants to bend and break and the cross itself that is unwilling to carry out this action and so there are all these incredible descriptions of it saying I wished that I could bend and break and there's this real sense of connection with nature because as is in the gospel narratives the earth trembles and so it's all like every part of creation is sort of protesting this but as Anglo-Saxons, because at the heart of Anglo-Saxon culture is this relationship of your Lord and King and his his followers, his underlings, and his his sort of beloved kinsmen. But it's that that's the kind of ultimate relationship within the Anglo-Saxon culture is this fealty to your Lord. And so because Christ is doing this, all of earth has to support him, even though it doesn't want to. So it he goes through the whole description of the, the narrative. And then I find it quite funny because they can't not give Christ a proper burial from an Anglo-Saxon point of view. So all of the fearless warriors of that surround him while he's on the cross, by which we mean the very frightened and upset women and John, <laughs> and I think Nicodemus as well, but they give Christ a proper burial and dirge and kind of sending off because the need for there to be that sense of loyalty to your Lord is is so central to the poem. And so it takes you through and allows you to be a part of the passion. And so at the end of it, the poet having lived through a perspective of the passion can also live in Christ. Yes. It's very it's very visceral and there's some very vivid imagery and you can really sort of visualize exactly what the the cross is talking about. I think you touched on it a bit at the the start of the description but I think one of the most powerful things about the poem is the willing heroism of Christ, you know, you know running to his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Um, it very much maps onto ideas that the Anglo-Saxons would have had about strength and heroism and what could so easily be be mocked as a sign of weakness, getting nailed to a cross and being crucified is completely flipped. And that, that idea of Christ the king and Christ the warrior and the, the enormous strength to run to that torture and that death really comes through really comes through in the poem and the other thing that's so interesting and again it it connects with what you're saying about the relationship at the fealty to one's lord the cross and christ it's like it's almost as if the the punishment is is happening to them both together that the passion Mm -hmm. it's almost both their passions that the cross is supporting him in that and it says, this is, sorry, this is my translation, so it might not be, it might not be as good as, as the one you've been working with. But the cross says, they pierced me with dark nails. They mocked us both together. Besmeredon here unkbutu at gadere. That's right. But it very much happens to both of them at the same time. The, it, the mm. cross describes it, the marks on itself, the scars, uh, it says the scars are visible on me, the, the scars from the nails are visible on the cross as they are on, yeah. on Christ. Very much, very much a relationship between them both. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And like I said at the start, we are going to try and read out some of the, the parts in Old English just because, to me at least, that was one of the ways that 
most inspired me to to learn about it. But I can assure you we're not showing off because I can probably guarantee that I, I at least will get a lot of it wrong. <laughs> it's been a long so, time since um, I had to read out Old English. Particularly anything <laughs> with a G, I'm never sure whether it should be pronounced or not. So yeah. sorry, sorry, professors, if anyone's listening. Um, I know, I feel so bad. If any of our lecturers hear this, I'm going to be so embarrassed because they could expect so much better of me, but this is what I can do at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but one of the things that I was going to say about the cross, and when I was saying it has that incredible duality of being both covered in gems and bloody, is that it relates to what you were saying about the two Christ and the cross in some ways being one and being two aspects of a, a particular experience. But there's a sort of kind of heightened tension in the poem when you kind of understand that I, I'm going to quote here from an academic article called The Dream of the Rude and the Practice of Penitential Meditation, which was quite interesting. But it said, on the last day, the cross would appear glorious to those who were saved, but appear as the blood-soaked instrument of torture to those who were damned. In the dream of the root, the cross appears first one way and then the other to the dreamer, placing him in fearful suspense. And so there's a sense that in his reflection and in his meditation, he is not entirely confident of where he sits within his own soul. And he doesn't know whether he's been saved or damned by the start of this poem. Wow. Which I might actually read out that section from the poem because it's beautiful. Uh, I'll attempt to read the bit in Old English and then I'll read it in the translation. It says, Silic was he sigebeum, ondic sinem far, for wounded midwoman, yesea ik wuldris treau, wadem ye worthoda, winem skinan, yerida midgolda, gimas heftan, beringena weerth leecha, weldenis treau, wadera ik thurthat gold. On gitan meitha, e armer er yewin, that his eris ongen, swatan on tha swithra helfa, al ik was made sorgum ye defred, forth ik was for thera fagrin ye seether, ye say ik that fuse bacon, wenden wadem on bleom, wheelem hit was mid waden bestemed, Beswilde mit swatas genga, huilem mit sinke yegirwed. So the translation is, Surpassing was this victory tree, And me splattered with sins, Struck through with fault, I saw this tree of glory, Well worthied in its dressing, Shining in delights, Geared with gold, Gemstones had nobly endowed The sovereign's tree, Nevertheless, I could perceive through all that gold a wretched and ancient struggle where it first started to sweat blood on its right side. I was entirely perturbed with sorrows. I was fearful for that lovely sight. Then I saw that streaking beacon warp its hue, its hangings. At times it was steamy with bloody wet, stained with coursing gore, and at other times it was glistening with treasure. Which is such a like sophisticated rendering of that sense of it being two things at once, that something can be glorious and resplendent and at the same time horrifying and an item of torture, you know? 
what often strikes me, not only about this poem, but actually about the other ones we're going to discuss as well, is the theology in them. Like, it's mm-hmm. really incredible, in-depth, rich theology. And it's what it's what we believe now, and it was what the church believed then, and it's just it's just so wonderfully described in some of this literature. It's it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And I was listening to a course which is on the Institute of Catholic Culture, which you can sign up to for free, and they have a lot of really great courses on there. And he was making the point that while Christianity came to Britain, it was only when it started being put into their own language and to, into their own imagination and understanding that they kind of got to grips with it. And once that happened, they were able to be incredibly sophisticated about it. Actually, another amazing point that he made is that it's also a really early example of the veneration of Mary, because towards the end of the poem, the speaker says that the reason you should venerate the cross is because it's the same reason you venerate Mary. The cross bore Jesus, and he even makes the point he bore him only for you know, an afternoon on on Good Friday, whereas Our Lady bore him for nine months in her womb. And so it makes this point. But it's funny because in some ways, it's quite a good argument, as he says, for why people should venerate Our Lady. But it works in reverse these days. I feel like a lot of Christians are quite comfortable with venerating the cross. But outside of the Catholic faith, there can be a lot of reticence in terms of venerating Our Lady. And so in the same way, it can actually work quite well in reverse now, which is to say, if we venerate the cross because it bore Jesus, why not Our Lady, who of her free will chose to bear him for, for nine months herself? Yes, it's it's really, a really powerful description of veneration of Our Lady. And something that struck me as I was preparing for the, the podcast is that there's actually lovely descriptions of of Mary and how worthy she is of veneration in each of the poems we're going to talk about. I just noticed it's yeah. actually in each of them. I thought, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. And it's it's so great to see the lineage of that tradition. And it makes for such a, a wonderful reflective poem. Like I said, in some ways, we're sharing this a little bit late in that Good Friday is now over for this year. But that sense of penitential meditation is so applicable at all times and that he then and then he goes on to describe Christ's actually I think all through the poems also describe the harrowing of hell (laughs) yeah common themes yeah the Anglo-Saxons loved the tradition of the harrowing of hell but it goes on to describe how the cross itself got buried and then was raised up and of course that's a reference to Saint Helena and so like we said there's that kind of duality between the two and that in approaching the cross we can approach Christ and so by the end of it the speaker has in reflecting on the cross become closer to Christ and that the cross because of its place it can hold that sort of central point I think actually in the article that I found on the clerk of Oxford blog she talks about the steadfast cross because there's that whole tension of the cross wanting to bend, but actually I think the the phrase is holding fast, like standing fast. And so there's that sense of being faithful, as we were saying, was so important in terms of your, your fealty to your king, but also that sense of the still point of the turning world that we understand of that moment being that steadfast moment on which the whole kind of drama of creation turned. Yes, yeah, I think Eleanor talks a lot about the, the word steadfast and the different translations 
And she really loves the translation of it as steadfast because it embodies a lot of that in it, just in the word itself. But it is repeated, that, that notion within the poem, it's repeated over and over again through the voice of the cross. You know, I, I can't bend or break, I can't fold, I can't fall to the earth. And it's just constant. It's really, really powerful. It even, I think, at one point says that I wish that I could fall and sort of fell the people who are doing this to my Lord. Yes. It talks but about even, that a lot, doesn't it? That kill all the foes. Like the cross has this power to do that. But in the same as that Christ has the power to do that, he doesn't. And so the cross mustn't either. Being a warrior is only so good as it's actually in the service of your king. So if anyone's looking to read translations, there's obviously quite a lot of them. As I am now not at my usual flat, I don't actually have a lot of my old textbooks, which I would have gone to. So I have been using the online resources. So just to give a, a shout out to the, the website, anglosaxonpoetry.camden.rutgers.edu. I think if you just search the Anglo-Saxon Narrative Poetry Project, there is a website where they're going through as many of the narrative poems and translating them. So if you're looking for a nice translation of it, it's such a wonderful poem that, like you said, I think it sort of transcends just being an Anglo-Saxon poem and becomes a really interesting poem from any era and from any point of view. Yes. No, I think it's I think it's really outstanding. And it's something I've shared with people as a sort of something for devotion and prayer in itself rather than like, oh, this was a historical poem that was written ages ago. But it's just even today, it's it's incredible. Similar to the kind of meditation you do with the Stations of the Cross, you can do it with this poem. It's that in depth. And yeah. So we better head straight from the cross into hell. <laughs> so like I said, the harrowing of hell, I wrote about it recently. I chose to write about that topic because... I actually love the tradition of the harrowing of hell. It is explicitly part of the Catholic tradition. We say it in the creed when we say he descended into hell on the third day he rose again. But obviously no one knows exactly what happened down there. We base some of our, our teachings on things like 1 Peter 4, 6, which states that good tidings were proclaimed to the dead. And there's a couple of other New Testament references that inform why we think that Christ went down into hell. But like we said, we, we don't have a narrative of that. Christ didn't tell us what he did. And so there's a lot of room for really interesting theological and literary and dramatic exploration. So in medieval poetry, it was quite a popular theme. And I think it's because it's one of the few times you can sort of have Christ as warrior hero motif without kind of getting into trouble of him being sort of battle hungry. Yes. So in some of the poems, he just goes to, like I said, those righteous souls and frees them and liberates them. But in other ones, he actually does a word battle with Satan. I know there's there's a section in Pierce Plowman where Satan and, and Christ sort of stand at the at the gates of hell and have this verbal debate over who has the true claim over these souls, mm -hmm. which is very cool. But the harrowing of hell is, even the word harrowing of hell is an old English word to harrow comes from old English hergian, which means to harry, pillage or plunder. And was usually kind of used in reference to Viking armies attacking, but it's sort of one of those great transitions from old English into Christianity to give this very triumphant entry into hell. 
the the poem we're going to be focusing, like I said, there is a couple of them, but the poem we're going to be focusing on for this section is just called The Descent into Hell, which is a helpful title. <laughs> and in it, it sort of begins with Christ in the tomb. It's very eerie and silent. And then the young warrior awakes and he has this sort of triumphant journey into hell. And then it's, it kind of switches perspectives and we get... John the Baptist speaking to the other righteous souls and saying how we can expect him and he is coming and uh, doing it what John the Baptist does best, which is heralding the arrival of Christ and is just a really interesting perspective. I think it's still in fragments. I don't think we have the whole poem, um, but there's, of course, the great sort of Anglo-Saxon battle cries but i love i actually think my favorite part is maybe at the start where it talks about the the awaking of christ it says before the dawn there came a throng of angels the joy of the hosts surrounded the savior's tomb open was the earth and vault the prince's body received the breath of life the ground shook hell dwellers laughed the young warrior awoke dauntless from the dust Majesty arose, victorious and wise. It's just epic, isn't it? It's like, Rohirrim! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To me, it's definitely like the most sort of Tolkien bit. Or it's the, you know, at the the start of the second film where they show Gandalf fighting the Balrog in the the Mines of Moria and that like bit Mm -hmm. after he falls from the Bridge of Khazad-dûm and that sort of epic battle. And that was actually kind of at the centre of the article that I wrote, which is that... On the surface, for the apostles on that day, it felt like nothing was happening. It was just like a dead day and all of their hope was gone. They were left in in despair. And underneath the surface, Christ was working this amazing battle of heroism and glory and victory. And that, you know, you can't ever just go by what you can feel and what your perspective is on something. Mm -hmm. But that there's a sort of great narrative that is happening all around you and underneath it. Yes. No, it's it's just the sheer epicness of it, of that mm-hmm. description as well. It's just, it's awesome, awesome, literally awesome. Yeah. His uh, his arrival is described as then the Lord of mankind hastened to his journey. The shield of the heavens wanted to destroy and demolish the walls of hell to carry off the people of the city, most righteous of all kings. In that battle, he gave no thought for helmeted warriors, nor would he bring mail clad soldiers to the gate of that fortress. But the locks fell apart, the barriers from the city, and the king rode in. So good. That was always something that drew me to Old English and the narratives of Old English is that sense of dignity and glory. And Mm -hmm. obviously it's in this very strange context a lot of the time of this sort of glory of battle and lacking of fear around death and destruction in a way. But that when applied to this Christian narrative gives this very unique and interesting perspective. And of course, you have reason to like the poem, Chloe, because it has a reference to a particular archangel? It does, it does. Yes, there's a, an actual address to Gabriel, which I shall attempt to read. Eala Gabriel, who thu eat gleau on skearp, milda on yemindig on monthwara, wis on thinum yewitta on um thinum wordus notor, that thu yesithdest thathuthonic knicked 
to us protest in Bethlehem. Bidan weith us longer, setan on sorgum, sibe of lister, winum on duenum, huone where word godes, thur his silphis muth sekian hirda. Which, not my translation, is, O Gabriel, how wise and keen you are, merciful and mindful and mild, wise in your wits and perceptive in your words that you showed when you brought to us the boy in Bethlehem. Long we had waited, sitting in sorrow, yearning for peace, happiness and hope, for when we would hear God's word speak from his own mouth. Beautiful. Um, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And teach it to Gabriel. It could be like his first, part of his first words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is aiming of, a bit high? <laughs> Instead of one, two, buckle my shoe, you're going yeah. <laughs> to... Just go straight in for the uh, the old English there. I think that's so great. And I love that it gives this big speech to St. John the Baptist as, mm-hmm. as, as sort of calling out for Christ to release them from their bonds of this part of hell. And then I think we better go to our final poem, which is the one that I'd be least familiar with. How about you, Chloe? Same. I don't yeah. think, as far as I remember, I don't remember studying this as part of any of our courses. I think I knew about it, but I didn't study it. I think I've looked at it briefly, but I never trans. I never translated it. I never sat down and studied it. But yeah, I think I studied about it, but it might have been before master's level. So this poem, which is actually the one which I referenced at the start, which Tolkien fell in love with, is is called. Christ, although it's three poems, either called Christ 1, 2, and 3, or Christ A, B, and C. So they're all different parts of the story of Christ. The first one is very much a reflection on the Advent antiphons. And then the second one, which is the one we're going to be talking about, kind of focuses on Christ's ascension into heaven. And then the last one is about the final judgment. But as we're in the Easter season, I thought we could have Ascension Thursday slash Sunday, depending on where you are, (laughs) and talk about the Ascension of Christ. And so the Christ 2 poem is it's it's a very long and again very technical poem. Um, it starts with another great rendition, like I said, of the harrowing of hell. So if you enjoy those sort of triumphant harrowing of hell narratives, definitely check out this poem. And then it goes on to describe the ascension into heaven with some wonderful language. I think a bit like the dream of the rude, where Christ sort of runs to the cross again in the old English. He sort of leaps into heaven. So. I don't know, Chloe, do you want to read that section? O gates of heaven, open up. The wielder of all wishes to enter into you. The king into his citadel with no small company. The author of olden works, leading his people into the joy of all joys, who he seized from the devil by means of his own victory. Peace shall be shared by angels and men alike, henceforth and forever, to the extent of life. A pledge is created between men and God together. A ghost holy troth, love, the hope of life, and all the joys of light. It's so wonderful, isn't it? It's it's incredible. I love the title, author of olden works. It's excellent, that. 
it's really excellent. Uh, what is? Do you know the old English um, for that? What's the? It's Fernwerke Fruma. So the way a lot of old English poetry works is repetition. So you'll say Christ and then you'll give him, as you've probably seen from some of the extracts that we've pulled out. So like author of the olden works, our wielder of all, or God Almighty, or the people's saviour, or the healer, that you get this real sense of the placement of who he is and the context of the particular aspect of Christ that you're trying to get across at any given moment. It's really reflective of language used of uh, Anglo-Saxon heroes within other poetry and other literature. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but something like um, Beowulf, you have similar sort of epithets that are really powerful and display different aspects of uh, the character's personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just that the Anglo-Saxons loved wordplay and loved poetic use of languages. They have a particular type of metaphor called a kenning, which is just a, a really tightly created metaphor. So something like the swan road as the sea or the bone house as your body. Yes. Um, so you can tell that they love to take time in exploring all of the ways that you could express the nature of God in this poetry. And then further down in the poem, it turns to a really interesting section, which is based on Gregory the Great's homily on the Ascension of Christ, where he calls the leaps of Christ. And I think it even takes that and extends it. So I think Gregory describes three or four, quote, leaps of Christ. So like the leap of Christ into the womb and then the leap of Christ out of the womb. And like we said, the, the sense that Christ's life was full of movement and that it happened in these particular stages of movement. And so the poem goes on to describe Christ as the clerk of Oxford points out, Christ is presented as a wheeling bird moving with ease between the heavens and the earth. So the, the, the next part of this poem imagines Christ as this, this bird that's dipping in and out. And I think it's so beautiful because one of the important lines about Anglo-Saxon experience just as a conversion was happening was that I think it was one of the kings said that life is like you are like a sparrow and that life is the the moment where you dip from the dark into the great hole and then you go back out into the dark that there's the sense that there's only like a flash of light in your life and if conversion gives you more than that then you should follow it so I think it's particularly moving in terms of a, an Anglo-Saxon context but the section reads the first leap was when he descended into a woman, an unblemished virgin, and there took human form without sin. That became a comfort to all earth's dwellers. The second bound was the birth of the boy when he was in the manger, wrapped in cloth in the form of a child, the glory of all glories. The third leap was the heavenly king's rush when he climbed upon the cross, father, comforting spirit. The fourth bound was into the tomb, where he relinquished the tree, safe in the sepulchre. The fifth leap, when he humbled the host of hell's inhabitants in living torment, the king bound within the advocate of the fiends in fetters of fire, the malignant one, where he still lies, fastened with chains in prison, bound by sins. The sixth leap, the holy one's hope play, when he ascended to heaven, into his former home, 
Then the throng of angels in that holy tide was made merry with laughter, rapt with joy. They saw the glory of majesty, first of princes, seek out his homeland, the bright mansions, and after that the blessed city dwellers endlessly delight in the prince's play. It's just gorgeous, isn't it? It's, it's just really so beautiful. And that again, like I said, that Anglo-Saxon faith was not something that was hold up in the dark that they were taking inspiration from the gospels they were taking inspiration from the homilies of popes that they were interacting with the world around them and yet they still had their own strong culture like i said that kind of goes away with the norman invasion that it had this distinctness that was truly them and found a beautiful expression but that wasn't cut off from the rest of the world equally that it was part of this Christian culture of the time. Um, yeah, very I, much so. I love what Eleanor says about this poem. She says, This Christ is dynamic, full of joy and energy. Everything that happens in his life is propelled by his triumphant vigour. Even his rush towards the cross and the moment he chooses to relinquish it, his ascension is not a passive lifting up into heaven, but an active bound towards his homeland. It links back to what we were saying with the dream of the rude rather than the, the seeming passivity of the passion it's the relentless activeness and action of christ and it's it's through all of these all of these poems and that um, there's a sense that christ is really rushing to be in your life and that you should return to him with equal vigor in this time of lockdown i've uh, i imagine you have as well rachel i've been going all over the world for mass um, but on the mass of uh, the morning of easter sunday I tuned in, tuned in to um, Father Andrew Cole, who was our wonderful priest and chaplain when we were doing our masters at Nottingham, and his homily was very much based around that that rushing of Christ to you. Whenever you pray, whenever you take a step to Him, He runs to you. And I just thought it was a really powerful image. And when you mentioned it, then it just brought it all back. Great homily, Father. Well done. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's why it's so lovely to meditate upon these poems that like, even though they're written in ancient times, you kind of get the best of both worlds, which is it has the sort of glamour of the ancient world and their, their legends and their sort of more fantastical imagining of the world. Um, and yet at the same time, what they're saying is so theologically profound and interesting that it still relates to us in terms of the way that we interact with our relationship with Christ now that you know it can travel across so much time and still be relevant and the the language of old english as well it's it's so it's so in depth and descriptive and vivid it just it's used beautifully to describe these events in our faith even it's one of the words that actually the clark of oxford talks about um, and it's in all of the poems that we've discussed and it's the aorthan for Christ's tomb, Aorthan, which has been translated earthen hall or earthen vault. But even that, like the, the earthen hall, it's like, you know, the mountain hall for the king. And mm -hmm. it's, it's Christ's tomb. Even something as seemingly closed and dead and passive as a tomb is given this grand title within within Old English. And I just think that the language of the Anglo-Saxons was just so so in-depth, the descriptions of everything. You see it in, here we go again, you see it in the place names, the descriptions of the landscape, it's just so particular and so in-depth and just 
it just communicates the knowledge that these people had in the pinpointing of certain aspects of life within the language. It's just, it's so, so exact. Yeah, that in terms of the the sort of strength and, and earthiness to the Anglo-Saxons, it reminds me of, I, I referenced it earlier, the article by Joseph Pearson, Faith and Culture. He talks about weird, which you can kind of sort of lamely translate to modern day weird, um, but mm. it's spelled W-Y-R-D and it's a much more sort of mm. sense of the intrinsic magic of the land. It's kind of a, a concept that in, we've in some ways lost. And so he says, for the modern in his electronic dream world, this is but foolishness. He has no concept of weird. For him, the weird is just weird or worse, merely absurd. Our ancestors' closeness to the natural and the supernatural is merely a sign of our ancestors' ignorance or barbarism, or so the modern perceives. But then the modern perceives very little because he is covered with too many artificial accretions to be able to experience and therefore perceive the real. The modern is right in one respect at least. He is right in perceiving that the Anglo-Saxons were primitives. He is right, however, for the wrong reasons. His error lies in the perception that the primitive is synonymous with the barbaric or the ignorant. It is indeed the irony of ironies that his belief that the primitive is synonymous with the barbaric or the ignorant, that is actually the product of his own barbarism and ignorance. In truth, the Anglo-Saxons are primitive, while he, the modern, is barbaric and ignorant. The one who is primitive is the one who never loses sight of the prime realities, the first things upon which all else rests. As an adjective, prime refers to the chief things, the most important things. As a noun, it is a state of the highest perfection. A primitive never loses sight of the most important things, nor the state of the highest perfection, which properly understood is the Godhead which I think sums up why I think that the Anglo-Saxon language is so appealing, because it doesn't have a language to describe some of the things that are extraneous. You couldn't ever translate a modern book into Old English because you just wouldn't have enough words in Old English to do it. But because of that, what's left is something that's really primal. It's incredible. And it can work like the other way as well, where we might say hill. They've got like 200 words for a hill. Well, what shape yeah. is it? What's on it? What is it? How high is it? Does it do this? Does it do that? Which I think relates to a Chesterton quote that you had picked out, Chloe, and you know I can't resist a Chesterton quote. Well, I thought it was kind of mandatory for this podcast, is it not, to have a Chesterton <laughs> quote in every episode? Yeah, it's, it, in a way it links back to what we are talking about towards the start of the episode about the Dark Ages and how they're perceived as something um, that was just flat and nothing came out of it. But Chesterton talks a lot about how rather than Christianity being something that just belongs in the Dark Ages, it's actually a path through the Dark Ages. If our faith had been a mere fad of the fading empire, fad would have followed fad in the twilight. And if the civilization ever re-emerged, and many such have never re-emerged, it would have been under some new barbaric flag. But the Christian church was the last life of the old society and was also the first life of the new. She took the people who were forgetting how to make an arch and she taught them to invent the Gothic arch. In a word, the most absurd thing that could be said of the church is the thing we have all heard said of it. How can we say that the church wishes to bring us back into the dark ages? The church was the only thing that ever brought us out of them. Beautiful. So I think that's maybe a good place to leave off. I hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about Old English poetry. If you did, do let us know because there are plenty more Old English topics that we could do. 
I think when we started brainstorming this episode, I was like, oh, let's just pick some of our favorite poems. And then I looked at the list of poems and I was like, no, I'm going to have to pick a theme within this. <laughs> Narrow it down. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty, so much. I'd love to... T- plenty more. Yeah, there's some great Old Testament translations of like the story of Judith. That's amazing. There's so many. I could yeah. keep going on. Homilies, prayers... We haven't even done a Beowulf. (laughs) So I hope our listeners have enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoy talking about it. I guess. (laughs) But there's one thing left to do, which is to ask you, Chloe, what have you been enjoying at the moment? Oh, no, I forgot we did this. (laughs) What have I been enjoying at the moment? I have been enjoying audiobooks because normal books haven't featured in my life since I gave birth. But in particular... The beloved radio plays um, of Dorothy L. Sayers' works, Lord Peter Whimsey, what a legend. So I've been working my way through those, which have been absolutely wonderful and glorious. That's entirely fitting, because the last time you were on, you we were discussing detective fiction. Oh, gosh, I'm like a one-trick pony. <laughs> for me, I think I said this in the last episode, but lockdown is sort of going by in a flurry for me. I seem to be... The days just slip away from me. So I, I feel like I don't have that much to report of things I've been enjoying. But I did just watch the... So the National Theatre is doing National Theatre at home. And each week they're putting up one of their older plays on YouTube for a week. So unfortunately, the one that I'm about to describe, you will not be able to see once this episode is up, uh, which was Treasure Island, which was very, very good. I enjoyed it a lot. Their sets were amazing. And Arthur Darville played Long John Silver and he was fantastic. But I think the start of May, they're showing the Frankenstein in which the creature and the doctor were played by Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. And they swapped over every, I think, alternate nights. So they would take turns playing. I remember I knew about that. I just... (laughs) I've seen the version where Benedict Cumberbatch plays the the creature, but actually the one they're showing is the one where Johnny Lee Miller plays the creature. So it's like a whole new experience. So I'm looking forward to seeing that in a week's time. So if you listen to it in time, check that out. But also I think you can just check out whatever they happen to have showing at the moment. There's also a lot of, along that lines, I know the Met Opera are having some of their operas showing for a couple of days at a time, or the Globe Theatre has one of their productions of Romeo and Juliet online at the moment. So it is a good opportunity to find things that you enjoy. Also, like I said, the Institute of Catholic Culture, there seems to be a lot of great series on there. And as we said, the Clark of Oxford blog, which I will definitely link in the show notes because it's really, really great. But other than that, I think it's time to say goodbye. Thank you, Liz. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Like, as always, Check us out on all the various social medias, get in touch and thanks so much for listening and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Enjoy the Easter season. Happy Easter. Alleluia. Happy Easter. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.